questions, why don't we? And we're going to try to look at some of these things along that line. A few years ago, there <clears throat> was a publication called Christian Chronicle. It's, it's put out by folks in the Church of Christ. And they had an article on the front page entitled, Churches Face Identity Crisis. It says, in the past, Churches of Christ were distinguished by belief in church autonomy, baptism for forgiveness of sins, weekly Lord's Supper on Sunday, public male membership, plurality of elders, and a cappella singing. Now some congregations have given up most, if not all, those distinctive characteristics. And the point of the article is the church is in an identity crisis. Well, I don't believe that as long as we stay true to God's word. And so this evening, our focus and our attention is going to be upon the subject of evangelism. Evangelism is very important to God. It's sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. And evangelism, whether we talk about an individual sitting down one-on-one -on -one and talking to somebody, or what we do as an effort from a church, it is the only mechanism <clears throat> that the church can grow. There's no other way. We can't hire people to be members. We can't buy members. The only way is teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important to God. It's important to those very first disciples. And so what we want to look at this evening is, as Jason talked about this morning, one of the fundamental things about the New Testament church, one of our missions is making disciples. How now does the church do that? And so that's kind of where we're going to go this evening with some of these things. Some of these things are going to be honest questions. Some of these things are going to be questions that may be a little bit difficult. Some of these questions may be things that maybe some of you have never heard before. But we want to look at them from a biblical standpoint and be able to answer them as God wants us to. In many ways, it goes back to <clears throat> one of the points that Roger made two weeks ago, or no, last Sunday. Last Sunday morning, as he was looking at lessons from American Restoration history, if you remember, one of his last points was each generation faces the question, do we believe that the Lord's church, as we read about in the New Testament, is it equipped and sufficient to do what God wants us to do in this generation? And that really is the question that we're looking at this evening. Now, we can look at that in a variety of different ways. Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we're going to talk about on the front of benevolence, helping our fellow brothers <laughs> and sisters in Christ. And so we've got a, a narrow lane that we need to stay in tonight as, as it relates to evangelism. But all of it really revolves around, okay, if we understand the Lord's mission as defined in the pages of the New Testament and we begin to look out into the world, how are we going to meet this mission is what we read in the New Testament. Is it equipped and sufficient for the 21st century? That's do, the question. And do we believe it works? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's go to our first question. First question is, uh, throughout the 1950s and 60s, a major division took place among the churches of Christ concerning institutions. How that came to expression, institutionalism. What do we mean by that? We need to make sure that we understand terms as they're being used. Anytime we want to try and come to a common understanding or uh, with each other, make sure that we're talking about the same thing in a, a way that will be conducive to learning and hopefully conformity to God's pattern, 
got to make sure that we understand terms. And this is a term that often gets thrown around. I'm a visual learner. I know that many of you are as well. And so I tried to boil this down to just the simplest terms I, I possibly could. We'll look at some passages of Scripture this evening that show us, especially in historical books like Acts in our New Testament, there being a variety of different needs. There's a need to meet the mission of making disciples. And we read about the church in Jerusalem, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, uh, all <laughs> over that ancient world. And, and we see local churches doing what they can to meet or address those needs. When we talk about institutionalism, what we're talking about is, well, what if rather than this arrangement, we had some sort of an institution where all of these different churches combined all of their funds, their resources, we, we sent that to some sort of an institution. That may be some sort of a missionary organization. I think you'll talk a little bit more about that historically in a moment. It might be some sort of an orphan's home or a nursing home, a school, a college, even maybe a political organization. We're all going to send our money to this institution and then rely on this institution to meet that need. Now, of course, we understand how institutions work. Somebody's got to be at the helm. Somebody's got to make decisions. Maybe it's a group of somebody's, a board or a, some sort of a, a council or a, some sort of gathering. And of course, those people are going to be needed to, uh, to be supported in a variety of ways. We, we hear today in the secular business world, eliminating the middleman. Well, in many ways... This model is an institutional middleman. Now the question is, is that a big deal or not? We'll, we'll get to that as we go along. But this is what we mean by institutionalism. Anything to add to that? All right, so <laughs> let's, let's plug one of, uh, of several things that we could there. You're our resident restoration history expert. Restoration history shows a major departure when the missionary society, a major departure, major division really, when the missionary society was introduced. So what is that and why did it lead to division? I understand why I always get the history question because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a long time to figure that out, but that's, I, I always get the history You're question. older, but your socks are, are younger. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I got to wear cool socks. Okay. All right, so when you trace American restoration history, as we've talked about last week, you go back far enough. Disciples of Christ, Christian church, churches of Christ were all the same. We're talking about the 1850s and before that. All the same. Those terms were used interchangeably. Today, when we talk about churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, or Christian church, those are three different roads people travel. Okay, And in the late 1800s, 
The first division between Churches of Christ and what we now call the Christian Church came about because of two things. One was instrumental music, and the second one was the Missionary Society. And if you go ahead and flip to the next one here. Sure. Missionary Society <clears throat> was established. Uh, no, that's the, that's the only Missionary Society slide I've got. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I thought you had that. Okay. Yes, all, right. Right. all right. All right. All right. I'll help you. You're young. I'll help you. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so, Alexander Campbell, who was, who was one of the predominant leaders in the Restoration Movement, uh, and I'm just going to read a, a little quotation here about him. He stressed the need for more efficient organization of the churches and how our present cooperative system is comparatively inefficient and ad inadequate for the times. Right there, he's saying is what we're doing, what we see in the Bible is not sufficient. We're not equipped. We're not sufficient. He stressed that a church can do more than what an individual can do, and a district of churches can do what a single congregation cannot do. And so in 1849, the American Christian Missionary Society was set up in Cincinnati. Alexander Campbell was the president. They had a vice president. They had secretaries. Now, you might say, like, to be a shepherd or an elder of this congregation, you have to have qualifications. What's the qualification of that? There was no qualifications. And so the churches, like you see on the screen there, sent money to the Missionary Society the missionary society decided what preacher would go where, how much he'd be paid. And so the missionary society became the mechanism for doing those things. And it became such a problem that there was a division later on because of that. And what we see with that, once again, is this idea that another organization larger than the local congregation is doing that work. And that... that kind of became a major problem. And so when the division took place between the Churches of Christ and the, mission, or the Christian Church, that was one of the major things that came up there. The idea that we're either we're going to do exactly what the Bible says or we're seeing some things that we feel like is more efficient, even though it's not in the Bible. So in many ways, it revolves around <clears throat> this, this basic question, ironically, that we hear Pharisees asking Jesus, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? That's it, exactly. And that is a fair question to ask. When you say, okay, show me in the Bible a missionary society. Show me a, an organization larger than the local congregation to do God's work. Show me the qualifications of a president or a secretary to run those things. Show me where a lot of churches gave money to something outside themselves for evangelism. You can't find any of that. Yeah. And so that, that became a major problem. So very similar to this is a concept we call the sponsoring church. Uh, the expression is used to designate one church overseeing the funding of a preacher somewhere else. The question is, is that biblical? Let's open our Bibles back to Acts chapter 13. There are a number <clears throat> of examples that we could dive into, especially in the book of Acts. In, in the New Testament, Acts is our one book of real history. And so today as we talked about the mission of the Lord's church, when we want to see that mission in flesh and blood action, we go to the book of Acts. We've got the apostles who are led by the Holy Spirit. We see good and bad decisions being made and we have the apostles 
with the help of the Holy Spirit helping us to understand how to think about those sorts of things. We read, of course, in the early chapters of Acts about the church that is in Jerusalem. And if ever there would have been, one would think, a sponsoring church arrangement, surely it would have been Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. We don't read that. We don't read about Jerusalem being the launching point or the great determiner of how this evangelistic effort is going to happen in the world. Instead, what we have are just simple historical accounts of local churches doing what they could to get the message out into the world. And so Acts 13, for instance, is not Jerusalem, it's the church in Antioch. And we read in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And over the course of the next few pages in your Bible, you can read about these evangelists being sent from the church in Antioch, carrying the gospel deep into Gentile territory. And we could spend the rest of the evening just dissecting chapter 13, chapter 14. For our purposes right now, go over to Acts chapter 18, where we read here, Acts chapter 18, and you skip down to, let's see here. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 14, not Acts chapter 18. I'll get there eventually. (coughs) Acts chapter 14, after this missionary journey, this, this effort to carry the gospel deep into Gentile territory, by the time we get to Acts chapter 14 and verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. Where they began, right? Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had appointed a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. We could replicate that example in your New Testament over <laughs> And over and over again, where it does not look like, I mean, we can change the, the lettering in our graphic here, it does not look like, okay, how are we going to evangelize the world? Well, well, we'll all send money down to Jerusalem, let's say, and allow them to determine. I mean, after all, we've got apostles still alive down there. Why don't we all pull our efforts and and send it down there and then under the guidance of those elders in Jerusalem, we'll let them determine who to send and where and how to support them and all, all of those things. Instead, what we find is 
what we talked about last Sunday evening, autonomous, self-governing churches simply doing what they can, in this instance, sending two men out with the gospel. So when they got done with their journey, they didn't go report to Jerusalem because Jerusalem didn't send them. They reported to Antioch. So when they're out there on the road, who are they responsible to? Antioch. Antioch was the one that was overseeing them and taking care of them. And so, so that, that, again, is a pattern we're going to see here in the New Testament. And it's interesting. I, I told you we'd get to Acts 18 eventually if you want to turn back there. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, as he goes, he was working in many respects. We read about that in Acts chapter 18 and verse 1 where he has left Athens, he goes to Corinth, he finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because of the same, he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Throughout the book of Acts, if you read carefully, many times, a few pages later, as he's talking with the elders in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he, he, he reminds them, listen, I, I didn't come in here and take advantage of you. I, I worked with my own hands and did what he could in, in spreading the gospel. Now, as, as that is passed on to another generation. He's very clear in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that there's absolutely nothing wrong and perhaps it's very, uh, in fact, it's very appropriate to financially support someone who has devoted their life to the gospel. But nowhere do we read about one church in charge of all of this, getting funds or resources somehow from all of these other churches and then that church being the one who's at the, the steering wheel of all of this. So, so hold on, I got another question. Sure. It's not on okay. our list either. No, so you're fine. I'm going to just wing it here on that, okay? <laughs> so we, we look at that diagram, mm-hmm. and we're saying that's not the biblical model. Biblical model would be that yellow dot and straight arrow to where the need is in evangelism. So going to all the world, Charlestown Road is not capable of going to all the world. We don't have the resources to do all of that, okay? This is a big world we live in. So how are we going to do that without doing that? That is where, if you remember question number one last Sunday evening was, okay, we read about church in two different ways, two different contexts in the pages of the Bible. In a, a universal sense, Jesus promises in Matthew 18, I, or Matthew 16, I will build my church. We also realize that not everybody lived in the same area. They were in different uh, parts of the world. And so we have brothers and sisters in any given geographical location who are, are banded together to worship and to work together, to hold each other accountable the way that we talked about this morning Nowhere, as far as I can tell, did Jesus ever say to the church in Ephesus, it's all on you. Ephesus, the world depends upon you. Or Thyatira, the the world depends on 
you. And when we begin, you know, a few months ago, we on Sunday morning went back and looked at the, the perspective problem in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And look at this amazing thing we can build rather than making sure that we're working for the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus, doing what we can. You know, Jesus, there are times, you've got, for instance, a woman who would come and she had ointment, she had hair, she used that ointment and her own hair to wash his feet and he says, you need to remember this because she has done what she could. And I believe that's, that's exactly what the founder expects of us. Do what you can and so, leave the results. So to there's you. no work God gives us that we cannot do ourselves. There is no work that we cannot do ourselves, but in his infinite wisdom, he is the only head, right? right. And the collective results are completely in his hands. I mean, it's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. I sowed and others reap, or I, I sow and others water, but the results are up to God. That's it. That's it. So... We've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul. There's, there's this interesting phrase that he uses that he robbed other churches. What, what did he mean by that? And how did those other churches cooperate to help Paul? Let's, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11. This is where it's found. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8. When we use the word rob, it sounds like something bad. Okay? I mean, it just... It just that's not a good word. You come in here and say, I was robbed. They go, I'm sad. You know, that's, that's a bad word. He doesn't use it in a negative sense. What he's talking about is how other churches helped him. Now, he's writing this to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church should have helped him. They did not. So he's reminding them that he got help, but it wasn't from the Corinthians. The verse is verse 8. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. But go back up here to verse 5. Notice as we start with verse 5 down to verse uh, 9, how many times Paul uses the word I. Okay? For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. For even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. When I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need and everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. What we don't read here is churches robbed churches. I robbed other churches. What Paul's saying is, I'm over here at Corinth, and churches at Macedonia sent the money to me. There was that no middle missionary. There was that no middle sponsoring church. They sent the money to the Apostle Paul. That flows through this context of I doing these things. And so once again, the biblical pattern for a church 
is to send the money directly to the need. The need here was, was supporting the, the preaching of God's word, and that's what was taking place. That allowed these churches to maintain that autonomy principle that we were talking about last Sunday evening, right? Where, okay, we went back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and, and we've got problems in the church in Ephesus, for instance. But it is not that, okay, there's corruption in Ephesus, which means the entire system, the entire effort now is, is corrupted. No, if, if there are issues in Ephesus, those who are overseeing the church in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, need to address that, right? But the mission work over here in Laodicea isn't, isn't compromised. That's right by that so okay is the only concern here about how the preacher gets the money no it's not about money it's about following this pattern of god so turn your bible to the book of philippians now philippians chapter 4 philippians chapter 4 once again just to notice this pattern and if this doesn't matter who determines if it does? But it doesn't matter whether we send the money directly to a preacher or we go through another church. If that doesn't matter, does it matter whether we have unleavened bread on Sunday morning or can we have cake and milk? Does it matter whether we immerse or we sprinkle? Does it matter we're a cappella or we have instrumental music? See, pretty soon, if, once you start opening that door and say, well, it really doesn't matter, then who decides what does matter? And for a lot of folks out there today, it doesn't. This is just a, a guideline, but we can do what we want. Philippians chapter 4 now, verse 15. It says, And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you send a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The Philippian church, even though Paul wasn't there in Philippi, had gone on some other places, including Corinth, was sending money to Paul to allow him to preach the gospel. That's the biblical pattern. And so the pattern is the church sent directly. That gives us autonomy. They can decide whether we're going to support Paul or not. They can decide how much we're going to give to Paul or not. They were still in control of that. And so when we think about this issue, it's not just about money. It's about following God's pattern, God's wisdom, and seeing the independence of each local congregation. And I think, again, that's, that's something that, that helps us. What we find in the New Testament is you find no church, listen to this, no church sent money to another church for evangelism. You do not find that in the New Testament. Now, there are, we're going to talk next week about benevolence and the church sending money to a church to help in benevolence, but you do not see that in evangelism. Here we are, we're, we're, going, to have, uh, we're going to have a big area gospel meeting in Louisville. We want all the churches in Louisville to send money to us so we can bring in hotshot preacher and do this. No, no. That's not biblical. What would be compromised by doing that? What would be compromised would be the, the churches that would send us money would be the, lose their autonomy. And suppose the preacher that they thought they were getting, we get somebody else instead. They lose all control. And it is our work. We are to do our work. 
And again, God has, God has equipped us to do the work that we're supposed to do. And we find that pattern in Scripture. We do. Right? What we're lacking is some institution or some sponsoring church in that pattern. Right. So next question is... What is considered mission work? We hear that word a lot today. And a lot of different groups will put any word in front of it. There's cooking ministries and this ministry and that ministry. So what, what do we mean biblically by mission work? Yeah. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me just show you another simple example. Again, we could replicate these all night long. Let me show you mission work in the New Testament. I mean, in the days of Matthew 16, as Jesus promises, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church that I will build. There aren't any believers in Thessalonica. When the gospel is first preached in Acts chapter 2, there aren't believers in Thessalonica. This is a couple of decades after that first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2, but I want you to listen to how it's described beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how in the world did that happen? All the way up in Thessalonica. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. Not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators, listen to this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What's the mission? To make disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? This gospel. What do you do? You bring that gospel to people who need this good news and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and you teach them to observe all that our Lord has commanded. That is exactly what's being described right here in Thessalonica. And it had had such an effect that now the region was hearing about their faith and the word of the gospel was sounding forth from them. They were embodying this teaching. They were worshiping in a city full of idols. They were being equipped for the work of ministry. That's the mission. And there were people who needed drinking water in Thessalonica. There were parents who could use help with their kids in Thessalonica. There were secular education things to be learned in Thessalonica.
Thessalonica. There were houses that needed to be built and a variety of physical needs that, that needed to be met and on and on and on we could go. But that, that wasn't the mission. This was the mission. Now, let, let me add one other verse here that we'll come back to, Lord willing, again next Sunday evening. James chapter 1, verse 27, often comes into discussions like this, and it will definitely come in, Lord willing, next Sunday evening. James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We'll look at some other passages, but it's really important for us as we read passages like that to stop and think, okay, who's he talking to? Is he talking to a church? If so, what church is that? Well, I can go to James chapter 1 and verse 1 and I don't see the name of the church. But what I, I do hear a lot in James 1 is instructions to individual Christians. We all are expected individually to do what we can do. And especially next Sunday evening, we'll talk more about the difference between individuals and, and the church. But this was the mission. This is what it looked like. Absolutely. T turn in Ephesians 4. We walked over that just a little bit this morning. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Again, this is, this is coming from heaven. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. What did God send into all the world? Teachers. Teachers of God's word. What you don't find in this list is carpenters. Carpenters are important. He didn't, he didn't find uh, medical personnel. Very important. But that wasn't what they would classify as biblical missions. Biblical missions. What Paul was on. What Barnabas was on. What Timothy, Titus, others were sent upon was preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus. Now, the problem is today in the modern world, the modern church, you put any of these words and then you put the word ministry behind it and then the church funds it. So I have a cooking ministry, which really means you come and I'm going to show you how to cook, which would be terrible if I did that. <laughs> I'd always go out to eat, okay? But, but then the church can fund that. We're going to have an art ministry. We're going to come, and, and I'm going to show you how to draw some pictures. And the church will fund that. We have a bicycle ministry. We're going to have this ministry, this ministry, and this ministry. And, and a lot of those are nothing more than just social clubs. It's not preaching and teaching the gospel, but they have the church funding those things. And we're going to talk a lot about, more about that here in two or three weeks as we keep going on with this series. But we need to appreciate when we talk about missions, Sometimes people ask that. What missions does this church do for teenagers? Well, if we want to send our teenagers to Africa to preach, that's something. But when we think about we're going to send them to Africa to dig an irrigation ditch, that's not a biblical mission. They want, if they want to go on their own and daddy's send them to Africa to dig a ditch, that's fine. But that's not a biblical mission as we think about that. Now, let's go to the next question. And is that coming? I don't think I have it on there. It okay. Okay. So preaching. We're talking about preaching and teaching. That's what mission is. So can a church send money to a quote unquote Christian college to, to train preachers to go into all the world and preach the gospel? So if we say the mission is preaching, can we send money to an institution or a college to 
develop preachers to fulfill that need. Well, that's, that's that, right? <laughs> where, where we start, that's, okay, we're going to lean on some man-made institution to help us meet this work. And I, I, I know I keep drawing your attention to simple examples, but if you go back to Acts chapter 16, we've got an awfully simple example of Paul carrying the gospel to Derby and to Lystra, and, and there's a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him. His father was a Greek. He didn't want that to be an issue with Jews in those places, and and they went on. And what you've got there developing is an experienced preacher taking under his wing a, a young man in whom there appears to be great potential and that young man growing and eventually being left in Ephesus. We read other examples. We, we were in Antioch earlier in Acts chapter 13 where there are these powerful teachers and evangelists and and shepherds, and you can just imagine the spiritual development that is going on there. Now, I, we will return here to the difference between me as an individual and, and this church. If, if I've got a passion for a, an alma mater or a particular uh, collegiate institution, and I, I want to write a check to them, I want to leave a, a million dollars in my will to that particular university, well, I... I, as an individual, have every right to do that, right? I would lean on Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, as, as money is being brought to the apostles. Listen, this, this money is under your control. You, you, you sold this piece of land. You do with that what, what you're going to do with that. But it goes back to what is our mission. And is the church sufficient and equipped, it certainly was for 1,800 years, to raise up preachers. Is it still? And we believe that it is. So it's the job of the church to raise preachers. It is the job, ultimately, I would argue, of individual disciples okay. to continue to raise so, up preachers. So uh, another off-the-cuff question for you. Okay. You go to Florida College lectures every year. I do. So what's the difference between that and Florida College? There is not one local church that is sending money to Florida College for those lectures, for uh, in any sort of instruction, biblical program, in any of those things. That is a college that is being supported by individuals. 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 That's, a, that's a difference we want you to see and appreciate. And again, the, the concept of churches sending that money, losing their autonomy is not found as we think about the New Testament. So who oversees the work of missions? The local church. The local and church. oversees. That's it, and, exactly. In Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, Paul goes out from Antioch. He comes back and he reports to the church. So, last question. How did this happen in the first century without some sort of system 
Keeping track of all of this, keeping track of everyone. Absolutely. Take your Bible, turn with me, the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Two verses there in Colossians 1 tells us that in the days of Paul, the gospel had been taken into the entire world. Colossians 1 verse 6, it says, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And then down verse 23 of that first chapter, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So it was considered in the first century world that the gospel was taken into all the world. But they did not have some mechanism. You didn't have somebody says, okay, James, it's time for you to go to India. And Titus, it's time for you to go to Ethiopia. And now uh, we're getting reports in from this preacher, and we've get, we got a big map here with pins in it where everybody's at. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. No technology. No one overseeing the whole operation. Yet you know what happened? It worked. The Bible shows us it worked. They went into the first century world, and they preached the gospel everywhere. Now, today, we've got to make a big franchise. We want to make something big. We've got to have someone overseeing this whole operation. We've got to have control over this. We've got to know what's going on over here and what's going on over there. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, what's going on on the south side of Kentucky? I don't know. I hope they're preaching. What's going on over in Missouri these days? I don't know. I hope they're preaching. What's going on in this community? I hope we're preaching. That's how the mechanism works. It worked in the first century world, and we need to believe it will work today. We need to have the understanding that God is sufficient. He gave us the work to do, and he gave us the shovels and the picks and the hoes to make this thing work. And when we believe that, we'll follow God's system. It's that when we look at this and say, oh, there's no way this can work today. There's absolutely no way. We've got to come up with some hierarchy here. We've got to get Jordan over here, get all the communication rolling here. We've got to have all this internet. We've got to have everything plugged in here. We've got somebody up here 24-7 who can take all these emails in, send all these texts to all these churches. No, you don't. Because it worked without any of that. Do you see how that is? And sometimes... I think we just think, well, this is too simple. And that's the way God things works. And sometimes we think, well, I don't think that would work today. But it does work today. One by one, people are being made disciples of Jesus Christ. Got your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, if you will. You know, many of you have heard of the passing of Gary Sandusky. You know, we're coming to a place, especially this year, as Solomon said, a generation goes and a generation comes. This is a third well-known preacher in my life that's passed away this very year. And that's life. Generation goes and generation comes. What's so unique about Gary's story is he preached last Sunday. Preached from a wheelchair. And if you've ever heard Gary Sandusky preach, at the very end, he always holds his Bible up. During the very end cancer in his legs, cancer throughout his body, feebly he stood up, held his Bible up one more time, and was taken to the Lord this past Saturday. 
But when we think about this idea of following God's way, Genesis chapter 6, again it's going to be repeated in chapter 7, Genesis 6, the very last verse, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Do you think when Noah was in that big old ark, he thought, man, I hope the Lord knows what he's doing here. I hope this thing doesn't leak. Why do I have to bring skunks and termites into this thing? I don't know. You know, lots of thoughts. He trusted the Lord. Where we are today, we have to trust the Lord. Well, we've got to have this. No, we don't if it's not in the Bible. You have to have this. No, you don't if it's not in the Bible. Remember that powerful story in the Old Testament about David moving the ark. Put it on a cart. Moved it. According to God, it's supposed to be carried by Levites. But putting it on the cart is a lot more efficient. It's faster. It's easier. But he got into trouble by doing that. And the same thing happens to us as individuals or the church when we try to outthink God. I think this would work better. Better stop right there. Because it won't be better. God has a plan, and we have to follow that. One of the great Gary Sandusky lines, and fits well with our little series he would do. He would say, put your finger on that verse. I've heard him say that many times. And that's what we're wanting you to do. As we're going through this series about the church... Put your finger on that verse. See what the Bible teaches. We're not interested in being the slickest, fastest, newest, upcoming church. We're interested in being the church of Jesus Christ, as we read about in the Bible. We're interested in following the Lord with all of our hearts. That's what we're interested in doing here. And there's a way to do that, and that is God's way. That's what's before us. And so as culture changes and as churches move onward and onward, so be it. We're going to follow Jesus Christ because his way works. It always, always has. And so it will be with us. And so this evening, if you're not a child of Jesus Christ, his way still works. If you want to go to heaven, it's got to be God's way. It's got to be the way God said it. By believing that gospel, being one who is baptized or immersed for the remission of your sins, and then growing as a disciple, that still works. And all throughout right here in this room, we've got men and women who've got Jesus in them. Their lives demonstrate Jesus because they've read that book, they follow that pattern, and they realize that still works. Forgiveness still works. Kindness still works. Serving still works. Those are the systems of God. And so if we can help you in any way, won't you come forward now as we stand, as we